Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal, where we're proud to support some of the amazing leaders you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I speak with Cassie Franklin, the mayor of Everett, Washington, where the very first case of COVID was detected in the United States. Cassie talks about what it was like in the early days of the pandemic, the tough choices she had to make with her city's budget, and what it will take to build back better. She also talks about making the leap from nonprofit executive working on preventing homelessness to running for office herself, and the difference she's been able to make on that critical issue as mayor. Mayor Cassie Franklin, welcome to an honorable profession. Thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So great to see you and congratulations on your reelect, which was not too long ago. So uh, that's exciting. Yeah, it is. I'm glad to have it behind me and it was good to have the support again. That's wonderful. Well, I'd love to, so many things going on that I want to talk about, but I thought maybe I'd start with a question about about COVID, in particular, since Everett, as people might not know, it was the very first COVID case. And you, I believe, were the first mayor in the country to issue a stay-at-home order in light and wake of that. And I just am wondering, as you kind of reflect back on that, you know, what was that like being mayor when you were really out in front of everybody in the rest of the country of kind of, you know, dealing with this? It was truly a, a terrifying time. I, I, I can't verbalize really how how challenging the last couple of years have been, but but truly those first few months were were really hard. And I feel very fortunate that I had an incredible team around me, uh, amazing chief of staff, deputy, and fire chief that acted as my emergency management person who was giving me very good advice, who recognized early on how serious we had to take this. For that first patient that came into Everett, our firefighters, our EMS, were the ones who transported that patient to the hospital. We kept that patient in isolation, did all the, you know, uh, work with the health district to do uh, the case tracing and everything, and put those systems in place early so that as as then the pandemic really started to hit, I feel like we were able to be a little bit ahead of the curve in other communities. And again, my outstanding fire chief really helped advise me. You know, we were ordering PPE before anyone was thinking about it because, because he said, we've got to be prepared. This is going to get bad. And he said, am I, will you authorize the orders that everyone's going to be wearing this full PPE? And I said, yeah. But I, I trusted that and um, the research he was sharing with me. And so I think we were outfitted with full protection gear before other departments across the country, which helped reduce the spread in our community. That's so amazing. And how did your residents react to the stay-at-home order, again, given that you were so far out of in front of everybody else? Did they understand what was happening and why you wanted to do that? 
Yeah. And I, I don't know if I was the first one in the country. I, I do believe I was the first in the state of Washington. We'd been having multiple conversations with the with the school districts, the, uh, the governor's office, the health department, the county. And I remember very distinctly just the urgency that I was hearing and feeling and the, the cases that were going up. And I was on my way home from the office. I worked in the office during the pandemic. And on my way home, I was seeing these people out in the community walking about and kids playing in the street and what normally would be a lovely thing. And I was just in my head and heart thinking, what's this going to do in our community? I don't want to see these people in the hospital. And I um, started to immediately work with my staff to issue the stay home order and issued it that week. And the governor followed suit. I think it was just three days later with a stay home order statewide. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we're not out of the woods yet, but I know, you know, as we think about recovery, you, you not only had the public health issue to deal with, but Everett was hit hard financially at the beginning of the pandemic, and you had some very hard decisions to have to make um, about your budget and what to cut. Uh, hopefully, there's more help coming on the horizon with some federal dollars and as we emerge from the pandemic. But, you know, what was that like and, and, and how are you feeling in terms of the outlook going forward? Uh, that was, again, a challenging time. I think that was in, in May. Uh, our budget was down by $13 million uh, very suddenly. It was like when you looked at the charts to see the, a nosedive, and you saw that nosedive without an end in sight. And um, that is our general government, which supports you know police, fire, street maintenance, parks, everything, You know, just also the just general business operations of the city. So we knew we had to get that in check immediately, and we made very difficult cuts mainly to services that were already not able to be fully operational because of the pandemic. So we we cut library, we cut the recreation programs in the city, our senior center was closed, our swim center was closed. All of these programs that our community really loves were cut and it did save our budget. We ended up in the in the black. <laughs> we ended the year on a on a on a good note and we were able to balance this year's budget without additional cuts and to bring many of those services and programs back, which has been um, very helpful. But that was a, a difficult time. Yeah. And uh, difficult choices. Those are, I guess that's why we're elected. We have to sometimes make those difficult choices. And uh, I'm grateful that our community is getting to the other side of it. And I'm incredibly grateful for the American Rescue Plan funding that we're getting. And uh, we're just, we've made some investments and we are uh, presenting uh, some proposals uh, for very significant investments to su support our community to council in just a couple of weeks. That's so great. Well, let's talk about, I suspect one of the investments you're going to think about, because I know it's an issue that's so near and dear to your heart is um, the homeless issue. Uh, in your city, as, as we've talk, we're talking about before this, you know, across the West Coast, really. Um, and you were a CEO and a nonprofit CEO before you became mayor that dealt with um, trying to reduce homelessness, work with at-risk youth. Um, why is that so important? What are you doing as mayor? And I'm kind of curious about, you know, what you, how it is being able to work on that issue as a mayor versus how you were able to impact it as a, as a nonprofit executive, whether you're, you know, that, that different lens you get to look at this through. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anybody who is in leadership right now is dealing with the challenge of homelessness in our in our country. It is truly in every community now, regardless of size. I think some of the, our cities on the West Coast are really being hard hit by this uh, major urban centers. Uh, Everett is the largest city north of Seattle. So we have the largest proportion uh, of, of the challenge and uh, largest proportion of unsheltered uh, residents in our community. And that was before the pandemic. And then the 
pandemic only has exacerbated that situation. Uh, some of the programs and services that used to exist pre-pandemic were not able to receive funding or weren't able to operate successfully during the pandemic closed temporarily and then permanently. And so there's just a lot more people needing intensive services on our streets. So uh, we approach it uh, always with a, a balanced approach in Everett, you know, balancing the services, the supports, the obviously necessary need for housing with uh, you know, enforcement and making sure that our entire community feels safe. Uh, there's been uh, a lot of challenges of, of open drug use and things like that. So how do you balance getting these people into treatment, but also making sure that, you know, members of the community feel safe walking their kids to school. And so I think my background in housing and homelessness and prevention has been really helpful in this work because I think as a most electeds are kind of drinking through the fire hose on any number of issues that we're dealing with in our community. And at least in this one area, I had a pretty strong background of, of program development and prevention and, you know, kind of those necessary services that people need to get through this challenge of homelessness and to know that it's possible to get people through this and, and, and that they can recover. Uh, that background, I think, has helped me uh, work with our uh, community leaders, our county, our nonprofit and faith-based partners that are actively engaged. I'm a, a trusted past partner uh, and, and now uh, in government where we have the ability to support them through funding or as mayor, I can call those teams together and, and troubleshoot and together uh, work on solutions. So, you know, we have uh, some outstanding programs that we've been able to implement since I've been in office, a new diversion center uh, that really helps people um, kind of get, uh, rather than go through the criminal justice system, get diverted immediately into intensive case management and support so that they, they avoid that criminal justice systems, but can get on a track where they're not going to engage in that criminal activity, but they're going to get the supports and services they need. We um, have an outreach and enforcement team uh, with social workers embedded with our police officers, and they go out with a and offer services repeatedly to community members. And they do it with a trauma-informed approach, which I know as a service provider is so important. I think a lot of folks don't understand the the trauma that people experience by being homeless, by the what it's like to live outside and not know where your next meal is or, or what's going to happen to you, how to be safe. And so our officers and social workers are trained in trauma-informed care and ACEs, and, and they can go out there with a really approach of compassion through over time, get them connected to the services and supports that they need. And then uh, obviously we've all been working towards increasing housing. Uh, one of the things that ARPA was uh, enabled us to do was to invest more in pallet shelters. We need more bridge shelter opportunities. You know, we've all been invested in permanent supportive housing. We need much more of that, but we also need bridge solutions. Some people who are very service resistant aren't able to be housed in an apartment, but also don't feel safe in a congregate shelter setting. Pallet shelters offer these individual safe uh, four wall shelters for individuals or couples where they can be inside, start to recover a little bit, and then after time, start to engage in services and get on a path to, to real recovery, whether it's treatment or workforce retraining or, or whatever they might need. Yeah, that's amazing. Have you seen a decrease in 
the homeless population. I'm sure it spiked at some point. And I, and I know that it's not, as you said, this is an ongoing issue and it was growing before the pandemic. Are you hopeful that you're seeing success with some of these programs already, or is this going to be a little bit of a longer term effort? It's definitely going to be a longer term effort, but we are already seeing success. Uh, we added the pallet shelter program just this summer, as well as one of our uh, diversion programs. We're already seeing success from that. We also have increased uh, motel vouchers. So I think we've been able to house about 40 to 60 residents that were honestly chronically homeless. So there's there's multiple levels of folks experiencing homelessness. Some are easier to kind of get back on their feet through a rapid rehousing program. Others that have been living outside uh, for, for years or are facing other challenges like behavioral health challenges or addiction, it may take much longer. And so to see success of immediately getting that many people housed, we had encampments popping up during the pandemic. And when we've been able to address that because we've been able to get many of these folks into housing, uh, this at least this bridge housing temporarily, while we work with our county and other partners on ARPA-funded solutions that we'll all look forward to implementing in the coming months. So great. It is. It's interesting, just like on the, on the hotel, motel vouchers specifically, so many communities, you know, did make this big push to get people into housing because of COVID. And I'm, my hope is, and it sounds like your hope is, you know, some of those emergency solutions will become much longer term solutions and really enable us to make a dent in this, you know, in this really heartbreaking issue. So, so. Absolutely. Every, I mean, everyone deserves the dignity of four walls and, and the safety of shelter. And so I think recognizing that these are our friends and neighbors and family members, and they need that initial support to, to recover is so important. But then I think what we also have to simultaneously invest in is prevention. And that's, you know, what I, uh, my experience in working in the nonprofit sector previously has really helped me understand is you've got to stop the pipeline into homelessness. Otherwise, you're always behind the curve. And I think the organization that I used to work for did an exceptional job of that. And I'm really proud of some of the programs we developed. And I look forward to continuing that work in, in this role and really working with our community partners on, on homelessness prevention programs that we continue to grow and invest in to, to keep our community housed and, and as safe as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and clearly, you know, there's so many issues that mayors on the front lines are dealing with right now. You know, recently, obviously, with the George Floyd and so many other tragic murders, you know, the whole country's been thinking and wrestling with this question of racial justice and criminal justice. I know that that's another issue where you spent a lot of your time thinking about uh, meaningful police reform. What have you been looking at in Everett and how's that going? We've been really lucky in Everett. We have a very progressive police chief who has been out in front on this issue. And even before I came to office was was working on a lot of really uh, cutting edge police reforms to, to ensure that his department was was meeting the community need and, and focused really on community policing and not not just enforcement and and uh, not just the criminal justice side of things. So uh, I think it starts with a, a really robust training. Our officers are trained. They, they, each officer gets 40 hours of de-escalation training. So when they're going out and interacting with the public, their first order of business is how can I de-escalate the situation? How can I ensure that we are not going to have to use force in a situation? And time and time again, they have been able to successfully de-escalate and it takes time. And, and sometimes it takes multiple uh, team members. So it, it can be a very staff intensive when you're working at de-escalation. Oftentimes you'll have to get more and more officers to a scene 
But to be able to do that means that someone's not getting hurt at the end of the day and the, and someone is going to get the help they need and the community is going to be safer for it. So the, the de-escalation training, they're also trained. Uh, we were one of the only agencies in, in the country that was selected to do, uh, it's called Project ABLE and it's active bystander for law enforcement. And so what it is, it's, uh, you know, I mean, you think about the, the, the horrific murder of George Floyd, what was somewhat mo so terrifying was the other officers that were standing there, right? And so what the active bystander uh, training does is it, it trains, it's almost like puts into muscle memory that officers intervene when an officer is engaged in misconduct. So that they're, that it's their duty to intervene and that it's that it's automatic that of course they intervene. Law enforcement is, is a very stressful environment. Everyone's adrenaline goes really high. It's a life and death situation often. And so these training programs are essential so that officers, when they're in that high adrenaline, uh, very difficult situation, they know that they can intervene, should intervene, and are expected and, and needed to intervene when, when they uh, witness misconduct. So that training is, is a, a really important part. We've also uh, have body-worn cameras department-wide, which is uh, should be you know essential now uh, nowadays. But it, it, we were one of the first departments in our region that has uh, department-wide body-worn cameras. And then the the diversion programs that we have, the embedded social workers that we have, these are the types of initiatives that are directing people away from the criminal justice system and into treatment, housing, substance abuse, behavioral health counseling, whatever it is that they need that is causing them to engage in this, this criminal behavior, right? So I think it is uh, those are important steps, and that's the approach that our team has taken. The state of Washington has implemented some very cutting-edge police reform this last session, and we are working together with our uh, legislature to, to adjust those reforms to make sure that they're working in our communities. But I think we have a, a, we're making really positive progress here in, in, our, in the city as well, as well as the state. Yeah. I do think it's so important as you're talking about just this, the holistic way to look at these things, right? This is a theme that, you know, when you're answered, we were talking about the homelessness issue and prevention. I mean, it's just so much more complicated than, you know, just finding a shelter, as you said, and, and, and with police reform, it's, it's so much more complicated, you know, to, to make sure that people have other paths. So I do love that, you know, it sounds like that's something that you look at generally is kind of, and I think a lot of mayors are doing this increasingly, you know, is trying to de-silo some of these efforts and make them much more holistic so that you can, you know, just be more successful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think additionally, we have a community advisory board, which was, I, I called them into uh, a group at the, like in the beginning of my first year in office and it, the chief's advisory board are members of the community that have maybe their families of folks that have been engaged in, in criminal activity in the past, or they're representing a diverse population that has been a, a, a victim of oppression in the past by uh, groups. And so they are giving us advice on any policies and changes and work that we're doing. They're also reviewing uses of force in our department. And so I think that uh, partnership with the community. It, you cannot provide public safety in a community without the trust of the community. And you and you uh, to get the trust of the community, you have to work in partnership with the community. And our police chief has been a leader in that and truly believes in community policing as it's meant to be, which is hand in hand with communities that really want that partnership and want to see those changes in in, in their public safety teams. 
Yeah. Well, it sounds like something you're talking about here too, is just transparency, right? I mean, to build that trust, to make sure that, you know, that that was something that you, I think you, I don't know if you campaigned on it, but I know it's been a theme of your mayorship is the transparency piece. And I think that to restore that faith in government, whether it's police or other, other ways, you know, you've got to have that transparency and an ability to connect in. So I'm glad you brought up the advisory council, because one of the things I wanted to ask you about was another recent advisory council you launched, which is a youth advisory council for residents, I think that are 16 to 21, if I remember correctly. And so tell me kind of what, what is that, what are your goals there and how are you, how's that working? Just like all the advisory councils is building the trust and and connection with our community. Uh, I think these advisory councils are uh, essential at all of our boards and commission as a way of engaging the community in their local government, giving them a voice. We are their elected public servants. We need to serve them. We need to listen to them and they need to help us lead. And so the Youth Advisory Board is especially important to me because of my background in working with youth. I have always believed that youth this age are at a really, it's a great age where they are filled with passion and really a drive to change the world for the better, to create a better place. They believe they can and they should. They are a, a bit idealistic, but they're not burdened by, oh, we've already done it that way. We can't do that again. I, I, I love that about them. And our Youth Advisory Board is incredibly diverse. These are amazing young people engaged in their in their high schools or community colleges and then giving freely of their time to come and talk to me and my team. And we use them as a sounding board on any number of things that we might be working on as a city. And then sometimes they can bring issues to us to, to think about. And so especially young people who who are not yet of voting age, I think getting their voice heard because the decisions we're making now as a city are will impact their life. So I should be listening to them almost more than other groups because this is going to be their city and we should be making decisions uh, that that serve them long into their future. So it is a it's a great group of young people that that I get the opportunity to work with. I love that. Is there an example that of, of an issue they brought to you that was not on your radar screen that they they helped pinpoint with a different perspective? I'm not sure what the, the Youth Advisory Board has brought to me recently, but the, the Diversity Advisory Board is, is one of the boards that recently brought to my attention that we needed to update our city code to be gender neutral. Uh, I pride uh, myself on working to make Everett a inclusive, welcoming city. And just like we're working on police reforms and we're working on homelessness, we have work to do on all of these fronts. We haven't solved these issues. We we have more work to do and we have more work to do to be an inclusive, welcoming city. And, and our diversity board member uh, said, you know, your code doesn't reflect that yet. We don't have a lot of the real egregious like firemen, policemen, but there's a couple of those, but there's a lot of he, she's. And, and so they're just to update the code to be gender neutral so that everybody, a non-binary individuals know that their city uh, code is, is representing them as well. And so that was a really neat thing that wasn't on my to-do list or radar to address, but they, that they brought to my attention and we're now addressing. Yeah, that's so fantastic. I, I want to 
talk to you about your own path into public service if we can for a minute. Of course, this is an honorable profession. And, you know, the whole the whole theory behind this podcast is that, you know, the people who are serving in, in public space are doing first an honorable and an amazing noble job. And secondly, that for people who maybe are thinking about running for office or there's so many different paths to public service. So I'm, I was so curious to find out when I was reading about you, I, I've known you for a while, but to get even more uh, prepped for this interview, I was reading about your background and, and you studied psychology and you went to graduate school for family systems therapy, I think it was called. So what was your, I guess, what interested you about psychology and what did you think you were going to do in life when you entered into that profession? Yeah, I, I went to school to to be a therapist. That was my that was my goal was to be a family therapist, maybe a, a youth counselor working with parents as well. And after I went through years and years of, of school and grad school, I, I quickly discovered that that wasn't the right path for me. As much as I wanted to help people heal, that I didn't have the right boundaries, or you know, I'd either I just I uh, my heart was broken by some of the stories, or I just uh, it, I carried the work in a really painful way with me, and I I, I discovered okay, there's got to be a, a better way for me to to serve my community, and so. When I finished grad school and came back to the United States, I started working in nonprofits as a way to kind of figure it out and and give back. And I fell in love with that work of working in uh, youth services and uh, helping uh, organizations that were serving homeless youth. I worked in uh, organizations that were also helping homeless animals and and uh, with uh, environmental education, and that was really fun. But I was really drawn to how can I help help youth. Uh, help youth that have been uh, suffered abuse or neglect and uh, been kind of discarded by our society, help them get back on the right track. And as much as I, you know, had the background to be a, a case manager or counselor, my skill set was more in organizational management, leadership, and, and business management. How can I make sure that this organization is well-equipped and that the staff is well-trained and supported and that we raise the money necessary to ensure that this program exists long into the future. And so that's where my strengths lie. And so that's where I kind of uh, went up in the nonprofit through, you know, fundraising and leadership and, and marketing and donor relations and then executive leadership and, and became the CEO. And, and interestingly enough, that is not a traditional <laughs> uh, pathway to uh, political leadership. I think I remember talking to some of my nonprofit colleagues and they were like, you're crazy. What in the world are you doing running for office? We don't do that. We, we, we serve the community this way. What are you doing, Cassie? And, and I, you know, it, it, interestingly enough, it was a really good background because it, you think about it in a nonprofit, you have to operate with a high level of transparency because you are 100% reliant on the public for donations to support the work that you're doing. So you have to be able to communicate that mission. And you are very mission-driven because you have a mission to end youth homelessness or, or whatever that mission is. And so it's it's not dissimilar to being in government. In government, you have to operate with a high level of transparency. I have to run for my job every four years and I am accountable to the whole community. And I have to accomplish the mission of all the different services areas that a city has to provide its constituents. And so it translated really well in the, in the complexities of government funding are also more similar to what a nonprofit has to deal with than what a private business has to deal with or gets to do. You know, you have more money, you can do things. A nonprofit, you have no money, you've got to figure out how to do it without the resources. And boy, I can tell you that's the way city government is as well. Sounds like government, right. <laughs> so it, was a, it was a really good training ground, I think. And what really got me thinking about um, 
public service was the previous mayor was dealing with homelessness and didn't know what to do and was calling together a task force to address homelessness. And I hadn't been invited to that task force yet. I'm, I'm sure it was an oversight, but I, I did make some noise and, and secured myself an invitation to join that task force because I did want to be engaged in, in working on those community solutions to this important problem. And knowing that about a quarter of the people experiencing homelessness were under the age 25 in the city of Everett, I, I thought my voice as a CEO of that organization would be important. And through that work, we had nonprofit leaders and law enforcement and faith-based leaders and neighborhood leaders and business leaders. And some people were like, just kick them out of town. And other people were like, well, let's put Tent City right in the middle of downtown. And, you know, I was able to step back and go, we all want the same thing. We all want a safe community. We all want to be able to uh, walk our kids to school and enjoy our parks and, and have a roof over our heads. So rather than argue about these nuances of what the solution is, let's step back and think about what are our shared community goals and start from that point and then work towards what those solutions could be. And through that work, I realized like, wow, I think I think I can do this. I think I can I could be a strong voice in bringing some community members together. And I, I went home and told my husband, I was like, I think after I'm done with Cocoon House, I might run for public office. Well, just a couple of weeks later, somebody asked me to run for public office and I did. So I ran while I was CEO, I, I became a city council member. And so then I remember doing that role. And as much as I did enjoy the service of being on the council, I, I'm much more of an executive. I The executive branch of government fits to my skill set and my strengths. And so I I did the same thing. I said, I think maybe I'll, I'll run for mayor someday. And that someday came much more quickly than I anticipated. And the previous mayor decided not to run for re-election. And uh, after just two years on the council, I, I ran for mayor. And I've very much enjoyed serving the community as mayor. It is the hardest job I've ever had. In many ways, the most rewarding. But I will say the last two years during this pandemic have been the biggest leadership challenges that I've ever had. And so I look forward to the the, the coming years and getting out of this pandemic and being able to make some really uh, significant progress in our community to address the longstanding challenges and 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 also a lot of opportunities in Everett. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm looking forward for all of my friends who are in elected office to, to have that day happen because you guys have just, it's been, it's been exhausting. I, I do want to say to that answer about bringing people together. I mean, it's such a blueprint for what you just said about, you know, kind of where we are in the country too, right? And the, and the, just the divisions and the divides we have over this or that. And so, you know, do you feel like as mayor, you, you have been able to bring people together on, you know, around issues that maybe have been divisive in the past or, or found ways to, to, to discover that common ground? I hope so. You know, I, I, I certainly, I know we have more work to do The the, the country is divided, but I do know that, Fortunately, local government, we are in a unique position. The issues that we're addressing are not partisan issues. You know, whether it's improving a local park or addressing a sidewalks that need to be replaced or other challenges in maintaining your streets, addressing homelessness, increasing housing, these shouldn't be partisan issues. Sometimes they're made to become partisan issues, which is sad, but at local government, I think we can be more successful at bringing the community together. And I think though the way we've done it in the city is to really, you start with your city teams, public works, uh, planning, community development, parks, maybe 
previously in uh, some of these departments might have worked more in a silo. And what we have tried to do in our administration is to bring them together so that if we're making decisions for our community, we're engaging all aspects of our community, just like the boards and commissions, uh, making sure that the boards and commissions reflect the residents in our city so that we're hearing all voices, making sure that as we're making decisions in our parks program, that we're also talking to other departments and making sure that those decisions are, are being fully thought out. That brings all of these different perspectives to the issue. Uh, and I think that we've been successful in doing that. That's a step one, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you this. You mentioned how hard it's been and we know how, you know, how really how hard it's been. How, how have you kept yourself grounded, sane, inspired uh, as you've gone through these months of, of such tough, tough leadership? That's a good question. I, I historically am not somebody who's very good at that, but we all had to get better at it because this has been hard on, on everybody in our community. And I do remember there were times in 2020 where I, I was just emotional. Uh, you know, you're, you're seeing people die in your community and you're feeling very helpless uh, to, to fix the, uh, the uh, global pandemic at a local level, right? Where I have found uh, the, the strength or uh, support to, to do this is by an incredible team of city staff that when I have met with our team members, whether it is somebody who is... Um, you know, working on our, our street crew or a park ranger or uh, a parking enforcement officer or uh, a firefighter or somebody who works in the clerk's office, they, they each approach it with incredible dedication to public service. And each of our public servants is really heroic in that aspect. They really want to serve Everett to the best of their abilities. And so that has fed me uh, a lot. I have an incredible family, a loving husband and an amazing uh, 12-year-old daughter <laughs> who uh, believes in me. And, uh, you know, I it takes time away from my family to be mayor. But I think when I think about my daughter and the the world that she sees where her mom is mayor and her mom is out making a difference in her community, the community that she's growing up in and goes to school in and walks to school in and all of that. So I, I, I think those are things that that feed me and 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 keep me going. And that and, you know, uh, maybe uh, cuddling up on the couch with a kitten on my lap uh, or, or wonders. <laughs> you did mention animals earlier in your love for animals. I think it's a fair game because it's on one of your websites, but I did see that uh, among things you like to do, karaoke was listed. So I'm just going to end with a question of what is your favorite karaoke song, Cassie Franklin? Oh, my goodness. Uh, uh, karaoke. Wow. I, I, it's been, well, it's, I, I will admit it's been a little bit of time since I've publicly done karaoke because I, I think that might be a, a weird, uh, Snapchat video that I want to avoid is the mayor out, uh, uh, doing a karaoke, but, uh, <laughs> I, I, I probably am a little bit of an eighties, uh, eighties girl. I, I, I wouldn't be shy to do a, a little bit of, uh, uh, Blondie, yeah, Blondie. <laughs> a karaoke or go-go. So those might be go-tos. Come on, Eileen. <laughs> one of my favorite songs. Yeah, I love it. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to, uh, even if we have to wait till after your mayor so to avoid that video, we will look forward to a karaoke at some point. I will remember that. But thank you so much, Mayor, for being with us and sharing your thoughts and just really appreciate all the hard work and that you and your colleagues have done around the country in this very tough time. So thank you. Oh, thanks. It was great talking with you, Debbie. You too. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. 
Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.